Welcome to Daily Wisdom, Walking the Path with the Buddha, a podcast shared by David Roylance. This podcast is dedicated to guiding you to completely eliminate the discontent mind and the suffering it causes by attaining enlightenment. Learn and practice the teachings of Gotama Buddha that will guide you to fully attain a peaceful, calm, serene, and content mind with joy. To support this podcast, visit patreon.com forward slash support Buddha or visit buddhadailywisdom.com where you will discover a full range of courses, retreats, and online learning resources to assist you on the path to enlightenment. Now, here's our teacher to share more. Hello and welcome to Daily Wisdom, Walking the Path with the Buddha. Today's our Pali Canon in English study group where we study the words of the Buddha. We're in Volume 3, Chapters 91 through 100. We only have a few more weeks and we'll actually be finished this book and moving on to Volume 4. We've got 10 chapters that people have been studying all over the world in order to learn with the words of the Buddha because that's truly the only way that we can actually progress to enlightenment. Without understanding what a true actual Buddha has taught, there's no way to really know what this path is because a Buddha is a discoverer, declarer, and originator of the path to enlightenment. They are the ones who have laid down the teachings in such a way that allows everyone else to be able to learn, reflect, and practice the teachings and experience this enlightened mental state. And the beauty about the Buddhist teachings is that we don't believe anything. We learn, we reflect, and we practice to be able to see the truth for ourselves. So even though I know that these teachings that I share with you are in fact the words of the Buddha, and they lead exactly where he said they do, to enlightenment, it's important that you don't believe those because I didn't believe them when I first started learning them. Instead, I learned them, I reflected on them, and then I practiced them to be able to see the truth for myself. And when you independently verify the truth, you acquire this wisdom and your practice develops more and more. And as you start making wiser and wiser choices in the world, your discontentedness of mind starts to diminish. So that sadness, anger, frustration, irritation, annoyance, guilt, shame, fear, boredom, loneliness, shyness, resentment, jealousy, all of these discontent feelings and others start to gradually dissipate as you train the mind through the teachings on the path to enlightenment that were declared by the Buddha during his lifetime. So here we are 2,500 years later, still being able to learn from his teachings and practice them in a way that produces this enlightened mental state. So thank you all for joining. Very pleased that you've decided to join for our class, whether you're joining live through any of the places that we stream to, or if you're listening to this on our podcast or one of the replays, I'd like to welcome all of you. The way that we start our class is we start with a meditation, just a brief, short meditation in order to prepare the mind for the class, because by clearing out any kind of clutter that you might have in the mind, then the mind is more clear. And as we learn today, you can absorb and retain the teachings for a longer period of time. Through retaining the teachings, then in your daily life, you can actually apply the teachings. If you just kind of blew through the class and really weren't concentrating on the content and really weren't investigating the teachings, 
you wouldn't have the understanding that you need in order to apply these teachings in daily life. So by doing a little brief meditation before class, you prepare the mind for learning and absorbing and retaining the teachings to then be able to be applied in daily life. And while we do this in class, you can actually do this as part of your own practice too. If you're getting ready to sit down to read some of the Buddhist teachings for 20 minutes or so, or however long you plan to read, you can do a little brief meditation beforehand in order to kind of prepare the mind for digging in and investigating the teachings. And you'll find that you actually retain the teachings a bit better. Now, most of us, when we're practicing to this point, we have a two or three sessions per day, 30 minutes or more that we do as part of our meditation practice. That's what you really need in order to get to enlightenment. But these little meditations here that we do before class are just brief little meditation, just like a little touch up. And you can use it that way in your own practice prior to reading if you like, or if it's kind of around a time that you'd like to do a full out meditation, you know, you can do a full out 20, 30, 40, 50 minute meditation, whatever it is that you typically do, and then actually read. And this will help you to retain the teachings and that will help you to then apply the teachings in daily life. So I'd like to invite you guys to meditate together. If you've got a cushion that you like to sit on the floor, you may want to prop up your rear a little bit. Or if you're in a chair, your feet are probably flat on the floor, just getting the lower body nice and stable. The hands and arms should rest comfortably in your lap. The Buddha put his right hand over his left, and that's how the Buddha meditated. But if that's not comfortable for you, you can put the palm down on your thighs or your knees or the armrest of a chair, whatever is comfortable for you. The lower body and the hands and arms should just be completely disengaged. The upper body should be nice and erect with the eyes closed. And you just start breathing in through the nose and out through the nose. I'm just going to give you some light guidance. The people who usually join this program or listening to it on the replay tend to be a little bit further along, so you don't need as much guidance in your meditation. Your breath isn't going to match to the guidance that I give, but just remember to breathe in through the nose and out through the nose. Taking some nice, gradual breaths. You're not interested to force the breath or control it. Just a nice, gradual inhale. And exhale. Start focusing the mind on the breath, the sound of the breath, or the sensation of air moving into the nose. This is the present moment. Breathing in and out. Breathing in and out. Wherever you notice that the mind is not on the breath, Cut that off, let it go, and come back to the breath, the present moment. I'm going to do some chanting to ease us into meditation, and then just leave you on your own for a brief meditation. Wherever you notice the mind is not on the breath, 
cut that off, let it go, and come back to the breath.
The way that we do this class is students are reading the chapters throughout the week through downloading the book from our website, which is buddhadailywisdom.com. Then you can click on the link for the free books, or you can find these books printable on Amazon, or you can even take that file that you download and go print it yourself. But if you're joining us for the first time and you haven't actually read, it's okay because we're going to display these on the screen and someone's going to be reading through each chapter. After the chapter is read, I'll teach the content from that particular chapter. And then any questions that you guys have, whether you're in Facebook, YouTube, or Zoom, I'll accept those questions and help you learn further. The way that you would ask questions is if you're in Facebook, YouTube, or Zoom, you can put those into the comment section. We have Bossum and Nick moderating today. They'll be able to see those and be sure your question gets asked during the class. If you're in Zoom, you can electronically raise your hand and ask any questions or follow-up questions that you have directly. So 
I'll just go ahead and turn things over to all of you, the students and the moderators, as we progress here in reading one chapter by chapter, teaching those, and then opening up to any questions that we have. Uh, yeah. Would you mind to read the first chapter? Sure. So Bassam's asked me to go ahead and read the first chapter, which is chapter 91 in volume three. This chapter is titled, Why Every Practitioner Should Study the Tathagata's Words. The Tathagata is the Buddha. And in volume one, in the frequently asked questions section, I explain what a Tathagata is and what that word means. But the Buddha most often referred to himself as the Tathagata. He didn't refer to himself as a Buddha. So he most often used this. So what these particular chapters extracted from the Pali Canon, these particular discourses are going to share with you are why we should all study his words and his discourses, his teachings, and only his teachings in terms of if we're looking to progress on this path to enlightenment rather than discourses or words that have been assembled by someone else other than an actual Buddha. The Buddha here, as we progress, you'll see that he's sharing the content with us about why we should study his teachings rather than look to some other assembly or some other community to try to mix and match with his teachings. Because during his lifetime, he was the fully perfectly enlightened Buddha and he knew that. And as his students became more and more enlightened, they knew that. But there were other communities that were actually studying and saying that they had the teachings that lead to enlightenment. There were multiple different communities. And these various teachers would oftentimes come in contact with the Buddha. And they would say that it was their teachings that lead to enlightenment. But when they would debate or they would talk or they would discuss the teachings, it became very clear more and more that it was the Buddhist teachings that actually lead to enlightenment because as they would discuss the teachings, sometimes the other teacher would get angry or frustrated or annoyed and get up and storm off out of the discussion. And people knew right there, okay, this person isn't enlightened if their mind is angry or frustrated or annoyed. Or sometimes the Buddha would discuss the teachings so eloquently that the teacher himself or herself would end up choosing to become a student of the Buddha and bring their students with them, that they would end up becoming students of the Buddha. And then even sometimes when the teacher would get up in frustration and leave, that person's students there observing the discussion would actually become students of the Buddha because in that moment they would realize their teacher isn't enlightened. And it would be very difficult for anybody to lead others to enlightenment if they themselves weren't enlightened. And it would be very difficult to attain enlightenment if you were studying teachings and words of someone who isn't enlightened. So that's why here this particular chapter is all about ensuring you have the information you need to know that it's the Buddhist teachings that you should learn and practice in order to experience enlightenment. So the overall chapter is titled, Why Every Practitioner Should Study the Tathagata's Words. And then there's multiple discourses here that have been put in here. The first one is titled, Words Which Should Be Studied, Learned, and Investigated in the Foremost Assembly, the Primary Assembly, the, you know, the Most Important Assembly. Here in this kind of assembly, when those discourses are being recited that are mere poetry, composed by poets, beautiful in words and phrases, created by outsiders, spoken by disciples. The monks do not want to listen to them. 
do not lend an ear to them or apply their minds to understand them. They do not think that those teachings should be studied and learned. But when those discourses spoken by the Tathagata are being recited that are deep, deep in meaning, world transcending, connected with emptiness, the monks want to listen to them, lend an ear to them, and apply their minds to understand them. They think those teachings should be studied and learned. And having learned those teachings, they question each other about them and investigate them thoroughly, asking, how is this? What is the meaning of this? They disclose to others what is obscure and clarify what is unclear and dispel their confusion about numerous misunderstandings. This is called the assembly trained in investigation, not in conceited talk. So here in this particular discourse, the Buddha is saying, you know, if someone is trying to teach in order to help someone awaken to enlightenment and their words are just poetry and beautiful words and just kind of feel good words, but the mind doesn't really have anything to work in order to apply these teachings, in order to actually understand these natural laws of existence, then these are just poetry. This is not real words or discourses that actually lead to enlightenment. But when he speaks and he talks, his words are deep in meaning. People are interested in listening to them because they're world transcending, kind of going beyond the world. They're able to share with you what the natural laws of existence are, and then you can investigate those teachings, learn them very thoroughly, and discuss them with each other. He encouraged his students to discuss his teachings with each other because this is a way to help you to understand the teachings and further soak them into the mind. And through this, you can then uncover things that are not clear and maybe get further help from the teacher. And as you have misunderstandings, then you can get clarity. Because when the Buddha spoke, he spoke and he had a certain wisdom about the teachings. But for his students to be able to instantly understand those teachings, it's not always going to be like that. It's going to be that they need to hear the same teachings two or three or four times, talk with each other about them, figure out their misunderstandings, get more clarity from the teacher, investigating the teachings. This is practicing that enlightenment factor of investigation. And in order to attain enlightenment, somebody would need to practice the enlightenment factor of investigation, digging into the teachings on a regular basis. And the Buddha says a, a group or a community that studies in this way, that really investigates the teachings and questions each other, examining the teachings, this is an assembly trained in how to investigate the teachings, not in this conceited or arrogant or prideful talk of just having words that are like poetry. So it's his teachings and investigating those teachings that is going to lead to enlightenment. And oftentimes practitioners who aren't really dedicated and diligent on the path, they might be more interested to listen to somebody who speaks with poetry or has beautiful words and phrases because it, it feels nice to the mind. But when you learn the actual real true teachings of the Buddha, the Tathagata, it takes a lot of work to really wrap your mind around it, investigate it and truly understand it and apply it. It's quite challenging sometimes, but somebody who is trained in investigation, not in conceited talk, is going to step up to that challenge and really work to apply effort and energy to learn and practice the teachings, even though it's going to take more work 
these beautiful words don't necessarily lead to enlightenment. They just kind of make the mind kind of feel nice. But the Buddha's words and his teachings are going to require the mind to really work. And if you're willing to do the work, his teachings will surely lead to enlightenment. The next discourse here in this chapter is titled, Words That Should Be Studied and Mastered. This is the simile of the drum peg. Monks, once in the past, the, I don't know how to pronounce this, the Shiras had a kettle drum called the Summoner. When the Summoner became cracked, the Deshires inserted another peg. Eventually, the time came when the Summoner's original drumhead had disappeared and only a collection of pegs remained. So too, monks. The same thing will happen with monks in the future. When those discourses spoken by the Tathagata that are deep, deep in meaning, world transcending, dealing with emptiness, are being recited, they will not be eager to listen to them, nor lend an ear to them, nor apply their minds to understand them, and they will not think those teachings should be studied and mastered. But when those discourses that are mere poetry composed by poets, beautiful in words and phrases, created by outsiders, spoken by their disciples, are being recited, they will be eager to listen to them, will lend an ear to them, will apply their minds to understand them, and they will think those teachings should be studied and mastered. In this way, monks, those discourses spoken by the Tathagata that are deep, deep in meaning, world transcending, dealing with emptiness, will disappear. This is the Buddha talking about his teachings disappearing because he understood impermanence and he understood that his teachings were going to gradually decline over 2,500 years. And then there's going to be this new Buddha that arises and brings his teachings back into the world and restores them so that all of the world can attain enlightenment. And here he's explaining that ordained practitioners, even his own ordained practitioners, are going to get to the point where they're not even interested to study the true words of the Buddha. And if you look around the world today, we have this case. This is the situation. The Buddha was predicting this during his lifetime. If you look around the world, even here in Thailand, a place that really is very well known for being a focal point for these teachings and the Theravada Buddhist teachings, the vast majority of the temples and monks don't study the words of the Buddha. They don't take the time to get access to them and they don't base their practice in the words of the Buddha. And if you look all throughout the world, you'll see this, that very few people understand the Pali Canon or take the time to investigate it. And we've gotten to that point where his teachings have practically disappeared. And now's the time to restore them back into the world by focusing on just the words of the Buddha and ensuring that we base our practice on the words of the Buddha. This next one, words from singleness of mind. Here's another name I can't pronounce. Giva Sana. The Tathagata teaches the teachings to others only to give them knowledge. When the talk is finished, Agiva Sana, then I steady my mind internally, quiet, bring it to singleness, and concentrate on that same sign of concentration as before in which I constantly reside. So here the Buddha is saying that, you know, as he's 
teaching and he's preparing to teach and he actually does teach, he only teaches in order to give knowledge to others because his mind has already attained enlightenment. He's already in that peaceful, calm, serene and content mind with joy, benefiting from the focus, the concentration, the clarity of mind and deep memory. Any work that a Buddha is doing is they're doing it for other people. They've already experiencing the enlightened mental state. They're just making themselves available for others to be able to experience the same mental state of enlightenment. So he's saying that he only shares these teachings in only to give them knowledge, to give other people knowledge. And as he talks, when the talk is finished, he steadies his mind internally. He quiets it. He brings it to singleness and he concentrates on it. And this is what he's doing is always constantly residing in singleness of mind in concentration. That's what an enlightened being would have is they would always have that singleness of mind, that focus, that concentration, being able to focus on a single thing at a time and very clearly and competently deliver discourses to be able to help other beings in the world. Words that are just so not otherwise. From the night he fully awakened monks until the night he attains final Nibbana, which is when he actually dies, in this interval, whatever he speaks, talks of, and expounds, all that is just so, not otherwise. This is actually somebody else speaking. This isn't the actual Buddha. What this individual is saying is that from the night the Buddha actually awoken, they kind of attribute one particular day to his enlightenment, even though it was a gradual progression. They kind of picked one spot in one particular day that they say, okay, this is the day that he was enlightened even though it was a gradual process, and though it picked just one spot, they say from this night when he fully awakened until he dies in attaining what we call final nibbana or final enlightenment, everything that he spoke for all those 45 years is all about how to attain enlightenment. He didn't speak anything else in terms of you know, lying or trying to run a business in order to become wealthy or rich. Everything he did, everything he spoke was all to help other beings to attain enlightenment. And that's what we have in the Pali Canon is the words of the Buddha. What did he speak during his lifetime that leads to enlightenment? This next one is called words of immediate effective teachings. Good monks, so you have been guided by me with these teachings, which are visible here and now, immediately effective, inviting introspection, onward leading, to be experienced by the wise for themselves. This is basically the Buddha saying, okay, you know, come investigate my teachings. These teachings that I'm sharing, you can see the truth for yourself here and now. They're visible right here, right now. And if you learn them, then they're immediately effective. You can apply them to your life practice, creating effectiveness, improving the condition of your mind. And he's inviting inspection. Come look at the teachings. Roll up your sleeves, examine them, investigate them, right? He's more than willing to open up the doors for people to come in and look at his teachings because he has confidence. His mind is fully enlightened, perfectly enlightened. He accomplished it by himself, and he knows that everything that he says, everything he speaks can be investigated and can be determined to be truthful, and you can actually experience the same results as him with this enlightened mind. So he has no problems having people come in and investigate his teachings and inspect them. And he says, you know, those who 
experience the effectiveness of his teachings, they'll be able to experience for themselves and they will be wise. They will see the truth for themselves. This next one is titled, Words of the Teachings and Discipline, Words to be Resided with as One's Own Island, as One's Own Refuge. Ananda, it may be that you will think the teacher's instruction has ceased. Now we have no teacher. It should not be seen like this, Ananda, for what I have taught and explained to you as teachings and discipline will, at my passing, be your teacher. Those monks, Ananda, either now or after I am gone, who reside with themselves as their own island, with themselves as their own refuge, with no other refuge, who reside with the teachings as their island, with the teachings as their refuge, with no other refuge, it is these monks, Ananda, who will be for me greatest of those dedicated to the training. So this is actually the Buddha speaking to one of his close students, Ananda, who was said to be his cousin during his lifetime. And this was about three months before the Buddha's death, where he was kind of consoling his student, Ananda, because Ananda was really kind of shaken up that the Buddha was about to die. It was apparent from the Pali Canon that Ananda was most likely attached to the Buddha. He never actually attained enlightenment during the lifetime of the Buddha. He didn't attain enlightenment until after the Buddha died, probably because he was attached to the Buddha. That was one of his craving desire attachments that he had that inhibited him from attaining enlightenment. And when the Buddha was announcing that he was about to die in three months, Ananda pleaded with him not to die and asked him to stay around longer. And the Buddha here is saying to him, you know, when I die, you probably think that my instruction is kind of ended and now we have no teacher. But the Buddha says, you know, don't see it like this, because what I've explained to you over the whole course of my life, once I die, those teachings will be your teacher. You can use those teachings to be your teacher. You know, you kind of don't need this physical body. You don't need this me to be here. You can use these teachings to guide you. And he says, OK, when I'm gone, you know, reside with yourself as your own island and as your own refuge. What this means is this is your own independent journey, your own independent practice. Some people confuse these words and they think that the Buddha is saying that you don't need a teacher in order to attain enlightenment. But the Buddha spent 45 years sharing these teachings because you need a teacher. And he's talked many places in his teachings about how you need a teacher in order to attain enlightenment. If Someone didn't need a teacher to attain enlightenment. He would have awakened to enlightenment. He said, okay, I did it. Now you can do it too. I'm going to go over here and be by myself. You guys figure it out for yourself. But he didn't do that. He didn't tell everyone to figure it out for themselves because he knows that they can't figure it out for themselves. They're not a Buddha. Only a Buddha can figure it out for themselves. So he's not telling people here to not have a teacher and just be by yourself. He's saying, be sure you view this as an independent practice. It's your journey to enlightenment. And be sure that you focus on these teachings that he shared as being your island, as your refuge. These teachings are what's going to protect the mind. And don't focus on any other teachings to be your refuge. Because these are the teachings that lead to enlightenment. And if you focus on these teachings, what he says here is that he considers these to be the greatest and most dedicated monks that are learning with him. 
because they are focusing on his teachings. And he knows that it's his teachings that leads to enlightenment. And if people focus on his teachings, they will eventually make an end to discontentedness and attain enlightenment. Words to be undertook as taught not to be abolished. As long as the monks do not give instruction on anything that has not been taught or abolish anything that has already been taught, but undertake and follow the training guidelines as they have been taught, only growth is to be predicted for them, not decline. So here the Buddha is saying, you know, only teach what I've taught. Don't get rid of things that I taught and say, oh, that's not needed, you know, push that to the side and don't try to insert your own teachings into his teachings, but instead focus on his teachings and ensure that you're continuing to practice his teachings and learning those teachings and things that he established as the teachings don't get rid of them. So for example, when he taught the five precepts, a really simple teaching, if somebody was like, oh yeah, we're allowed to kill living beings and still be enlightened, we can kill living beings and no problem, we'll still be enlightened. Or we can steal and we can lie, that's part of being enlightened. We're still allowed to steal and lie and you know, stealing and lying will lead to good wholesome results in your life. If somebody actually incorporated that into their teachings, then they're not going to experience enlightenment. Or like the Buddha taught in order to get to uh, arahant, to the fourth stage of enlightenment, that one would need to give up sex, for example. In that first and second stage of enlightenment, you can still have sexual contact, and then when you're ready, you can move into the third and fourth stage of enlightenment. But if somebody were to come along and say, oh yeah, the Buddha taught that we shouldn't have sex and that's you know part of getting to enlightenment but you know we can still have sex let's still have sex let's change the buddhist teachings when you change the buddhist teachings then you're really looking for danger you're really harming your own mind and you're going to be harming countless other people because as you share those adopted and mixed and matched teachings they're not the true teachings that actually lead to enlightenment so it's very important that once a buddha declares certain teachings that their students don't change and modify their teachings because a Buddha has been very intentional to deliver discourses and share teachings in a certain way on purpose. And while other people may not understand why a Buddha has taught that way, that doesn't mean there's anything wrong with the teachings. It just means that that person doesn't understand the Buddhist teachings. They should seek to understand the Buddhist teachings, not change and adopt them because it's uncomfortable to stop stealing or stop lying or stop taking substances that cause heedlessness just because the mind doesn't want to give those things up doesn't mean that the teaching should be changed or modified because then it makes the path very blurry and very murky for everybody but by sticking close to the words of the buddha then you can see this path to enlightenment that's very illuminated with lights almost running down the sides of the path, and you can see very clearly what is the path to enlightenment. So let me see what questions you guys have on any of these that I've taught so far. As for the last teaching, it seems that over years, some people thinking that they are wiser than the Buddha, they try to maybe modify or maybe thinking that they are updating the Buddha's teaching to make the teachings uh, uh, applicable after 
I don't agree with that because there's nothing that needs to be updated in order to make it apply for today. Because the Buddha taught 2,500 years ago based on the natural laws of existence. The natural laws of existence are the natural laws. They're permanent. They don't change. While he spoke about those natural laws of existence and laid down exactly explaining what are those natural laws of existence, over time, people's understanding of what he taught has slowly, gradually declined where they don't understand what he taught in some cases. But the natural laws themselves haven't changed. So for example, we know that if you kill or you steal or you have sexual misconduct or you lie or you take substances that cause heedlessness, this is going to be problematic in your life because it's causing harm to others and it's going to cause harm to you. Things like the five factors of well-spoken speech. These are the same things that the Buddha was talking about during his lifetime, that he was explaining the natural laws of existence that existed during his lifetime. And for somebody who takes the time to see what the Buddha actually taught, his teachings are timeless because these natural laws haven't changed from 2,500 years ago to today. The thing that has changed, the impermanence here, is that people's understanding, people's memory, the books, as you copy the teachings from one to another to another, those have changed. Because during the lifetime of the Buddha, everything was oral, so people had to remember things. And in an oral tradition, it's very easy to lose track of what the true teachings are. But at some point, they actually started writing the teachings down. And they didn't have really nice computers and paper and printers the way that we have today. They would go out in the forest and they would gather up leaves. They would dry leaves. They would make their ink and they would write down the teachings. Well, as they would do this, they're working on a surface that isn't very pure, very clean. And then with the environment and moisture and rain, you know, these things would degrade over time and they didn't have a photocopy machine to photocopy one leaf to the next. They actually had to go out and get more leaves, dry them, you know, make the ink and write them out. And when the leaves are changing, and the leaves are starting to decompose, a certain mark that was made you know, 50 years ago on a leaf, well, when this leaf starts to change colors and starts to get darker, it might actually change the character without people realizing it. It might actually look a little bit different. So when they were copying from one leaf manuscript to the next leaf manuscript, they did this countless times until we got to where we are today and it was very challenging for them to keep track of what the teachings were, even in written form. And the way that you break through this impermanence is when you get a set of teachings like what I share in these books, is you don't believe them. You learn them, you reflect on them, and you practice them to see if they're actually working to improve the condition of the mind. And if the condition of the mind is improving, then you know it's the truth. But where the Buddhist teachings are in conflict with what somebody's saying, then you know that they're not the true teachings. So if there's teachings that you learn from anywhere other than with me, you can always consult these resources that I share and you can see whether or not it's true or not. And you can practice to see the truth too. So if somebody tries to teach you some meditation technique, for example, that you've never heard of before, well, the first thing you can do is look to see if it's in the Pali Canon or not. If it's not there, then there's a very good chance that the Buddha didn't teach it. 
But even there, you can actually practice the meditation and see, is it working to improve the condition of your mind? Does it somehow connect to the teachings themselves? And what you see is the meditation techniques that the Buddha taught, they all connect in and are in sync with his teachings, where people that have gradually changed his teachings over time, they may not even realize that that's what's transpired. It might have just happened gradually to the point where people don't even realize that what they're learning, what they're sharing as teachers, what they're learning as students, they may not even realize that it's not the Buddhist teachings because they haven't consulted his actual discourses and looked to see what are the true real teachings. And they haven't developed their practice to not be based on belief, but instead see the truth as they practice to see the condition of the mind improve. So there's just no need whatsoever to change a Buddhist teachings. A Buddha is going to be fully, perfectly enlightened and they're going to deliver the discourses in such a way that need to be practiced in that way and understood in that way in order to experience the results of enlightenment. No more question for now. All right. So we go on to chapter 92 here. Yes, let's go to Miranda. The Noble Eightfold Path is the wholesome practice instituted. Ananda, I instituted that wholesome practice, which leads to complete liberation, to freedom from strong feelings, to elimination, to peace, to direct knowledge, experience, to enlightenment, to nibbana. And what is that wholesome practice? It is this noble eightfold path that is right view, right intention, right speech, right action, right livelihood, right effort, right mindfulness, and right concentration. Ananda, I say to you, continue this wholesome practice instituted by me and do not be the last man. Ananda, when there are two men living, he under whom there occurs a breach of this wholesome practice, he is the last man among them. Therefore, Ananda, I say to you, continue this wholesome practice instituted by me and do not be the last man. Thank you, Miranda. So this chapter is basically saying what I just said, which is the Buddha laid down this path to enlightenment. It's the Eightfold Path. And he's saying, continue this practice. You know, essentially, don't change what I taught, that when you practice this, this is what leads to enlightenment. This is what leads to elimination of those strong feelings, it leads to peace, it leads to enlightenment, it leads to nibbana. And then he talks about, you know, don't be the last man because the Buddha knows that his teachings were going to decline and he knew that there's going to be this new Buddha that arises and brings his teachings back into the world. And then he knew from that point forward, all these teachings would spread throughout the world and more and more and more people would attain enlightenment until the entire world attains enlightenment and these teachings are so deeply rooted into the minds of all people that the entire world can be liberated and live in peace and harmony for the rest of humanity and the buddha is saying don't be the last man don't be the last person because as more and more people start attaining enlightenment and this cycle of rebirth starts to flush out there's going to be less and less and less beings on the planet so now we've had this explosion of population and we'll continue that explosion for a while but over time, as these teachings permeate in the world more and more, and more and more people attain enlightenment, there'll be less and less beings that are actually born into the world, and the number of beings will actually shrink, and humanity will eventually disappear. And the Buddha is saying, don't be the last person to attain enlightenment. That would be very miserable to have gone through all those 
many, 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 many countless generations to end up being the very, very last person to attain enlightenment. What questions do you guys have on this chapter? What question this time, teacher? All right. Next one is chapter 93. You asked me to do this one, right, Basim? Yeah, Okay, this one's titled The Buddha's Last Days. This is where the leading up to the death of the Buddha, all these chapters that we're studying right now, are kind of leading up to his death. And this one is addressed to Sariputta, which is considered to be one of the most closest students to the Buddha. Ananda was very close to the Buddha and studied very closely, but he never attained enlightenment during the lifetime of the Buddha. Sariputta actually attained enlightenment during the lifetime of the Buddha, and he was considered to be a really, really close student to the Buddha. Sariputta, there are certain aesthetics and Brahmins whose doctrine in view is this. As long as this good man is still young, a black-haired young man endowed with youthfulness in the prime of life, so long is he perfect in his clear wisdom. But when this good man is old, aged, burdened with years, advanced in life, and come to the last stage, being 80, 90, or a 100 years old, then the clarity of his wisdom is lost. But it should not be regarded so. I am now old, aged, burdened with years, advanced in life, and come to the last stage. My years have turned 80. This is when the Buddha died at the age of 80. Now suppose that I had four disciples with a hundred years lifespan, perfect in mindfulness, recall of the teachings, memory and clarity of wisdom, just as a skilled archer trained, practiced and tested could easily shoot a light arrow across the shadow of a palm tree. Suppose that they were even to that extent perfect in mindfulness, recall of the teachings, memory and clarity of wisdom. Suppose that they continually asked me about the four foundations of mindfulness and that I answered them when asked and that they remembered each answer of mine and never asked a subsidiary question or paused except to eat, drink, consume food, taste, urinate, defecate, and rest in order to remove sleepiness and tiredness. Still, the Tathagata's explanation of the teachings his explanations of the factors of the teachings and his replies to questions would not yet come to an end. But meanwhile, those four disciples of mine with their years, hundred years lifespan would have died at the end of those hundred years. Sariputta, even if you have to carry me about on a bed, still there would be no change to the clarity of the Tathagata's wisdom. Rightly speaking, were it to be said of anyone, a being not subject to ignorance or delusion has appeared in the world for the welfare and peacefulness of many, out of compassion for the world, for the good, welfare, and peacefulness of gods and humans. It is of me indeed that, rightly speaking, this should be said. Then the Venerable Ananda approached the perfectly enlightened one, having approached and paid homage or respect, while massaging the perfectly enlightened one's limbs, he said to him, It is wonderful, venerable sir. It is amazing, venerable sir. The perfectly enlightened one's complexion is no longer pure and bright. His limbs are all flimsy and wrinkled. 
His body is stooped, and some alteration is seen in his sense bases, in the eye sense base, the ear sense base, the nose sense base, the tongue sense base, and the body sense base. So it is, Ananda. In youth, one is subject to aging. In health, one is subject to sickness. While alive, one is subject to death. The complexion is no longer pure and bright. The limbs are all flimsy and wrinkled. The body is stooped, and some alteration is seen in the sense bases. In the eye, ear, nose, tongue, body, sense base. This is what the perfectly enlightened one said. Having said this, the fortunate one, the teacher, further said this. Yuck on you, pitiful aging. Aging which makes beauty fade. So much has the charming puppet been crushed beneath advancing age. One who might live a hundred years also has death as destination. Death spares none along the way, but comes crushing everything. And now again, Ananda, the Tathagata has today at Chapala's shrine consciously and deliberately rejected the rest of his allotment, allotted term of life. And when he had thus spoken, the Venerable Ananda addressed the Fortunate One and said, Grant us the privilege, Venerable Sir, to remain during the eon, live on through the eon, O Fortunate One, for the good and peacefulness of the great multitudes, out of the pity for the world, for the wholesomeness and the gain and the well-being of gods and men. Enough, Ananda. Beg not the Tathagata, was the reply. The time for making such a request has passed. So essentially what happened is Ananda was begging the Buddha not to die. And the Buddha's like, okay, you know, that time has passed, you know, essentially time for me to die. So here Ananda asks a second time and a third time. He asked the Buddha three different times, you know, please don't die, essentially. Because the Buddha was warning people that he was about to die. In that when a suggestion so evident and a hint so clear were thus given to you by the Tathagata, you were incapable of comprehending them, right? So the Buddha is saying, you know, you should have suggested this to me earlier, essentially what he was saying. If you should have then so begged the Tathagata, the Tathagata might have rejected the appeal even to the second time, but the third time he would have granted it. You therefore, O Ananda, are the fault. You are the offense. So the Buddha is like, you haven't asked me soon enough to stay longer. The Buddha knew he was about to die, but Ananda kind of waited too long to ask him to stay around longer. So the Buddha is saying, you know, you're at fault. You know, you, you've created an offense here. But now, Ananda, have I not formally declared to you that it is in this very nature of th all things near and dear to us that we must divide ourselves from them? leave them, sever ourselves from them. So the Buddha is here talking about impermanence and saying everything that's near and dear to us is going to need to leave us someday. Haven't I told you that? Haven't I declared that? Haven't I taught you that? That everything's going to have to leave you someday? Because here Ananda is trying to hold on to the Buddha and he doesn't want him to die. So the Buddha is like reminding him, you know, don't you understand impermanence? How then, Ananda, can this be possible? Whereas anything, whatever born, brought into being, 
and organized contains within itself the inherent necessity of dissolution. How then can this be possible that such a being should not be dissolved? No such condition can exist. So he's basically saying every single being has to die. It's not possible for me to stay around for an eon. That's what Ananda was asking him to do is like stay around for an eon. An eon is like an indefinite period of time. It's like infinite period of time. It's an immeasurable, incalculable amount of time. The Buddha is like, it's not possible because of the universal truth of impermanence. So then the Buddha finishes up with, all component things must grow old. Work out your salvation with diligence. The final extinction of the Tathagata will take place before long. At the end of three months from this time, the Tathagata will die. My age is now full, ripe. My life draws to its close. I leave you. I depart, relying on myself alone. Be diligent then, O brethren, holy, full of thought. Be steadfast in dedication. Keep watch over your own hearts. Who becomes tired not, but holds fast to this truth in natural law, shall cross the sea of life, shall make an end of grief. So the Buddha is saying here three months before he dies that he's going to die and stay close to his teachings, continue to practice them diligently. Watch over your hearts is essentially like saying having mindfulness because we talk about the heart as sometimes where the mind is, even though the Buddha doesn't explicitly say that, but he oftentimes will refer to the heart as the mind And he's saying, keep watch over it, right? Like watch over your mind. Don't become tired. Remain diligent and hold fast to this truth and natural law, these natural laws of existence that he taught. And if you do this, then you'll make an end to grief or an end to discontentedness. Do you guys have any questions on this chapter? Yes, sure. How can a professional distance themselves from beloved ones whom one has craving for. This is a really long talk to discuss and something that I'm going to be discussing in our upcoming retreat in June when I come to the U.S., if that's what ends up happening, that I have multiple classes to talk about how to eliminate attachment to loved ones and people that are close to you because that's one of the most challenging things to do. There's multiple aspects of this that need to be discussed because if it's children or if it's a life partner or if it's parents, this question can't really be answered in just two minutes or five minutes. So I'll wait until we get to discussing in America in June all the different classes that I'm going to hold that are going to be helpful in how to eliminate this attachment to people who are close to us because this is one of the most challenging aspects of practice. But in the meantime, just continue with breathing mindfulness meditation, continue with practicing generosity, and train the mind to let go and not hold people so tightly. Don't try to control them, but instead work to just allow people to make their own decisions. Thanks, sir. My other question is, would the Buddha have altered the timing of his departure if, if Ananda had in fact made this request earlier? Why was this part of the dialogue mentioned? 
that's what the Buddha sounds like he's saying here, that, hey, you know, if you would have said something to me sooner, you know, I would have been able to alter the, the time that I was going to die. But he's like, you know, the time has passed for making such a request. So it sounds like the Buddha felt that he was capable of doing that, but it wasn't the right time to do it. So, yeah, that's what he said. Why he said it, you know, because he was asked the question, you know, so he replied with his answer. Thanks, teacher. No more questions. All right. Let's move to chapter 94. Reside for the teachings as your refuge. But have I not already declared, Ananda, that we must be parted, separated, and severed from all who are dear and agreeable to us? How, Ananda, is it to be obtained here? May what is born come to be conditioned and subject to disintegration not disintegrate that is impossible therefore ananda reside with yourselves as your own island with yourselves as your own refuge with no other refuge reside with the teachings as your island with the teachings as your refuge with no other refuge and how ananda does a monk reside with himself as his own island with himself as his own refuge with no other refuge with the teachings as his island, with the teachings as his refuge, with no other refuge. Here in Anda, a monk resides reflecting on the body in the body. He, he resides reflecting on feelings in feelings. He resides reflecting on mind in mind. He resides reflecting on mental objects and mental objects, dedicated, clearly comprehending, mindful, having removed craving and displeasure in regard to the world. Those monks, Ananda, either now or after I am done, who reside with themselves as their own island, with themselves as their own refuge, with no other refuge, who reside with the teachings as their island, with the teachings as their refuge, with no other refuge. It is these monks, Ananda, who will be for me greatest of those dedicated to the training. Okay, so here's an expanded version of what we were discussing earlier, where I mentioned to you that this was a misunderstanding, that some people think that when they look at this sentence of reside with yourself as your own island, that the Buddha is saying that you don't need a teacher. But here you can actually see what he's really talking about. What he's really talking about is practicing the four foundations of mindfulness. When he talks about reflecting on body as body, feelings as feelings, mind and mind, mental objects as mental objects, he's saying that's how you reside with yourself as your own refuge in your own island is basically you take the dedication and the initiative and the effort and the energy to observe those bodily sensations when they arise, cut off the discontentedness and let it go. And same thing with the feelings, the condition of the mind and the mental objects. So here you can see very clearly what he means when he's saying that, you know, reside with yourself as your own island and your own refuge because nobody else can observe the bodily sensations that arise prior to discontentedness and nobody else can cut off that discontentedness while it's getting ready to arise. Only you can do that. Your teacher can teach you. Your teacher can give you discourses. The teacher can help you develop a meditation practice and all these other aspects of the path. But nobody can sit there and observe your mind, know when those bodily sensations are arising and cut that off and let it go other than you. 
This is why you can't force somebody to attain enlightenment. If somebody is going to attain enlightenment, it has to be based on their own will, their own intentions, their own interest, because they have to do the work. They have to do the work to study and learn and practice these teachings, but they also have to do the work to observe these bodily sensations arising and cut it off and let it go, along with meditation and everything else. We can't force people into meditating. It's not possible. It wouldn't work for somebody to attain enlightenment that way. So that's why the Buddha is saying, this is your own independent practice. You need to actively progress on this path. But there's places where he talks about it's important to have a teacher because he knows as a fully perfectly enlightened Buddha, only a Buddha would be able to attain enlightenment on their own without the help of a teacher. Everyone else in the world will need a teacher. The last Buddha that the world currently is aware of existed over 2,500 years ago. So that means anybody who's listening to this, you're going to need guidance. You're going to need these discourses. You're going to need these books. And that's why I make everything that I do at no cost and freely and openly available to everybody so that there's no barriers, no obstacles for you in order to reach in, learn the Buddhist teachings, and then actively learn them and progress on this path because you're going to need these things. So that's what this one is all about. Well, doesn't seem to be a question from the teacher. All right, so let's go to 95. Yes, uh, the next volunteer is the next one. Four criteria that assure the words of the Buddha. Suppose a monk were to say, friends, I heard and received this from the perfectly enlightened one's own lips. These are the teachings. This is the discipline. This is the master's teaching. Then, monks, you should neither approve nor disapprove his words. Then, without approving or disapproving his words and expressions, should be carefully noted and compared with the suttas, the discourses, and reviewed in the light of the discipline. If they, on such comparison and review, are not found to conform with the suttas or discourses or the discipline, the conclusion must be, assuredly, this is not the word of the Buddha. It had been wrongly understood by this monk, and the matter is to be rejected. Oh, where on such comparison and review they are found to conform to the suttas or discourses or the discipline, the conclusion must be, assuredly, this is the word of the Buddha. It has been rightly understood by this monk. Suppose a monk were to say, in such and such place, there is a community with elders and distinguished teachers. I have heard and received this from the community. Then monks, you should neither approve nor disapprove his words, dot, 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 dot. Suppose a monk were to say, in such and such place, there are many elders who are learned, bearers of the tradition, know the teachings, the discipline, the training guidance, dot, dot, dot. Suppose a monk were to say, in such and such place, there is one elder who is learned. I have heard and received this from that elder but where in such comparison and review they are found to conform to the suttas and discourses and the discipline, then the conclusion must be, assuredly, 
This is the word of the Buddha and has been rightly understood by this monk. All right. Thanks, Nick. So here the Buddha is once again giving us a teaching before he dies that says, hey, if you're going to progress on this path to enlightenment and that's what your interest is, when you hear a teaching from somebody other than me, because he's getting ready to die, so there's going to be all these people who are now teaching on his behalf, when you hear that teaching, don't approve it or disapprove it, but compare it to what he actually taught. Because there's people like Sariputta and Ananda and others who were really well learned in his teachings and they had his teachings memorized word for word for word. So he's saying, okay, compare what this third person said to what I said. And if it's not the same, then you should reject that. You should ignore it because it's not what I said. But where you see that what somebody else says matches with what I said, then you can be assured that this is the words of the Buddha. So here he's giving you way to confirm that what he taught is what you're hearing from somebody after his death. So this is why anybody that you should study with and you choose to learn this path to enlightenment, they should have the words of the Buddha from the Pali Canon so that anything that they talk about, anything that they teach you as part of the path to enlightenment, you can compare and contrast that to the Pali Canon in such a way that you can determine for yourself whether or not what that teacher is sharing as a discourse and what are the teachings that they directly relate to the words of the Buddha. And if a teacher isn't able to do that, or if you're not able to do that with a teacher's words, then the Buddha is saying, reject that and consider that it's not his words and that this person has wrongly understood what he actually taught. So this is very helpful for you that if you're going to embark on this journey to learn and practice and do all this work on this path to enlightenment, you're going to invest lots of time, effort, energy, and resources into this path to enlightenment, you would like to be assured that what you're learning and what you're going to be practicing are from the Buddha. Because anybody else that's modified his teachings, it's going to dissuade somebody. It's going to mislead them on this path. So by having this assurity, by having this confidence that what your teacher is sharing is indeed connected to the words of the Buddha, then you can feel confident and comfortable to invest your time, effort, energy, and resources to learn, reflect, and practice and know that you're going to be making progress. Any questions on this chapter? Not seeing any questions, Peter. First one. All right. Chapter 96. Yes, let's go to Miranda. The supreme honor and respect. Ananda, prepare me a bed between these twin solitaries with my head to the north. I am tired and need to lie down. Ananda, these solid trees have burst forth into an abundance of untimely blossoms, which fell upon the Tathagata's body, sprinkling it and covering it in homage, respect. Divine coral tree flowers fell from the sky. Divine sandalwood powder fell from the sky, sprinkling and covering the Tathagata's body in homage, respect. Divine music and song sound from the sky in homage, respect to the Tathagata. Never before has the Tathagata been so honored, respected, appreciated, admired, and adored. <clears throat> and yet, Ananda, whatever male or female ordained practitioner, male or female household practitioner, resides practicing the teachings properly and, perfect and perfectly, 
fulfills the way of the teachings. He or she honors the Tathagata, has deep respect and appreciates him, and pays him supreme homage, respect. Therefore, Ananda, we will reside practicing teachings properly and perfectly. Fulfill the way of the teachings. This must be your goal and objective. All right. Thank you, Miranda. There's a, a few things here to look at. The first sentence, you can see that his close student Ananda is preparing a bed for him. This is very common for students to take good care of their teacher. And then you see that there's this miracle essentially that occurs where the burst out this blossoms on this tree. And then there's this sprinkling of flowers and powder that comes over the Tathagata's body or the Buddha's body. And then there's this music that comes from the sky, this song and this sound. And the Buddha talks about, you know, this was done in order to honor him and appreciate and admire him, right? But right away, instead of like, as you see, having any kind of ego or arrogance that this miracle just occurred, the Buddha right away connects it to his teachings. He talks about, okay, if anybody should happen to be interested in respecting me and appreciating me and honoring me, even though this miracle was amazing that just occurred, what is really important is for people to learn and practice his teachings. That's the way to show the deepest respect and the deepest appreciation to him. So since we've been talking about modification of his teachings and changing his teachings and not knowing whether or not teachings are his or not, here the Buddha is explaining, like, okay, if you learn and practice what I taught, this is the absolute best way to show the deepest amount of respect and appreciation. And he's saying this must be your goal and your objective. Because in doing so, he knows that people are going to attain enlightenment if they stay true to his teachings. So what questions do you guys have on this one? Well, uh, the way the Buddha deals with this situation, of course, this means that there is no ego and there is no desire in uh, uh, sensual uh, pleasures. Does this mean that an enlightened mind will never experience any pleasure in praise? The enlightened mind is going to experience praise from other people. People are going to praise enlightened beings, but their mind isn't going to arise enjoyment or pleasurable feelings because of that. They're going to hear it. They're going to know it's there, but the mind isn't going to take pride or arrogance or arise any kind of pleasant feelings whatsoever based on these praise that might be coming their way. So... An enlightened mind has been trained not to base its inner feelings on what's happening. So if a mind has allowed to take great pleasure in this praise, that means that when somebody talks negative, the mind's going to experience painful feelings. But an enlightened mind has been trained beyond that, that it hears the praise, but it doesn't allow pleasant feelings to arise because of it. It might hear anger and frustration, people talking negative about this enlightened being, because that happens too that people can talk negatively and harsh and be angry at an enlightened being. But an enlightened mind is going to be completely calm and peaceful in that situation, not having any painful feelings because of that derogatory speech whatsoever. The mind will be permanently in the middle, not affected by praise and also not affected by negativity either. In terms of enjoyment, an enlightened being will enjoy life. They'll actually enjoy life way more than when they were in the unenlightened state. Because in the unenlightened state, 
we deal with all this discontentedness, this up and down, this anger, this sadness, this frustration, this guilt and shame, this boredom, this loneliness, this constant discontentedness is coming into the mind for an unenlightened being. When all that's eradicated from the mind through purification of the mind, when you're training on the path to enlightenment, as the mind arrives to this enlightened mental state, the being is going to actually enjoy life a whole lot more because they're no longer experiencing any of these painful feelings or all this other discontentedness that takes the mind up and down, up and down and up and down. The difference is, is that when an enlightened being experiences something that is enjoyable, their mind isn't going to arise these pleasant feelings that they then cling on to and hold on to wanting them to be permanent. Instead, they're going to enjoy the present moment and then they're going to move on. So if they sit down to a nice meal and the meal is like, oh, wow, this is really enjoyable. This tastes outstanding. But then the next meal they have, the taste is, say, horrible. They're still going to be able to eat that food because their mind isn't going to react negatively like, oh, my goodness, this food is so horrible. Well, if you allow the mind to cling to the pleasant feelings that arise based on a wonderful meal, an enjoyable meal, then when you have a meal that isn't so enjoyable, the mind is going to be discontent. It's going to have these painful feelings. But an enlightened mind can enjoy the present moment of that enjoyable tasting food, and then they can sit down to their next meal, and they can eat the next meal and be completely content with that too. Likewise, if there's some situation where they're doing some activity or they're involved in something, they can enjoy that activity and they actually enjoy it more in the enlightened state because they don't have all these discontent feelings that are coming in. But then the very next moment, if there's something else that the mind needs to do, the enlightened mind can move on from that experience that they were enjoying and then they can just move on to the next thing, not clinging and wanting that particular activity to continue. The mind is no longer clinging to this enjoyable thing. They're enjoying it in the present moment and then they're just leaving it behind and moving on to the next thing. Thanks, sir. No more questions for now. All right. Chapter 97. Yes, uh, let's go to Ali. Teaching and discipline will be your teacher. Amanda, it may be that you will think the teacher's instruction has ceased. How we have no teacher, it should not be seem like this. Amanda, for what I have taught, oh, sorry, I lost the screen. Oh, what happened now? <laughs> I, I move away from the reading screen. Oh, okay. Would you like me to finish it for you or? Yes, please. Thank you. Okay. So, Ananda, for what I have taught and explained to you as teachings and discipline will, at my passing, be your teacher. Now, monks, I declare to you, all conditioned things are of a nature to decay, strive on untiringly. These were the Tathagata's last words. So, basically, he knew not only three months before he was going to die, but he knew the exact moment he was going to die. That's how enlightened he was. And he delivered this last teaching. And it's similar to one that he said previously, where he's saying, okay, you know, the teacher's instruction has not ceased, that it's the teachings that he explained during his lifetime that are going to remain 
as their teacher upon his passing now that he's about to die. And then his last sentence is his last and final teaching, which is essentially the very first thing that he teaches, which is the universal truth of impermanence. So his very last words are his very first teaching. Now, monks, I declare to you, all conditioned things are of a nature to decay, strive on untiringly. So he's basically talking about this physical body, that his mind and physical body are together. He's saying, hey, this physical body is going to decay. All conditioned things are a nature to decay. All conditioned things are impermanent. And then he says, strive on untiringly. Keep moving forward. Keep being diligent. Keep being dedicated. Keep learning. Keep progressing towards enlightenment. This is a key sentence for you, not only because it's his last sentence that he ever said, but one of the misunderstandings in the world is that the Buddha taught that everything is impermanent. And some people think that enlightenment is impermanent because they think that the Buddha taught everything is impermanent. But the Buddha didn't teach that everything is impermanent. He taught that all conditioned things are impermanent. And something that's conditioned is something that arises, that changes, and then fades away. Enlightenment doesn't do that. And the natural laws of existence don't do that. And if you have unconditional love for somebody, unconditional love is permanent because there's no conditions that were created to make you fall in love with somebody. So therefore, you can't fall out of love with somebody if you have unconditional love for somebody. So like I can say I have unconditional love for everyone in the world and you don't have to do anything that I automatically love you without you having to do anything. Therefore, there's nothing that you can do to make me stop loving you because there's unconditional love. This love, it hasn't arisen, it doesn't change, and it doesn't fade away because it's unconditional love. So the Buddha didn't teach that all things are impermanent. He taught that all conditioned things are impermanent. There has to be some condition to create something. And when that condition exists, it arises, it changes, and it fades away. And this physical body that he inhabited during his lifetime, it was a conditioned thing. That's why it had to decay. And that's why it was impermanent, because at one time it didn't exist. It arose, the physical body changed over time, and then eventually it faded away. The physical body decayed. And that's why all beings are going to die, because we're all impermanent. There isn't a being that's killing us and taking us away from the planet. The only reason why we die is because we were born. Because we are a conditioned thing, we arise, we change, and then we fade away. We die because we were born. So the Buddha is using this last moment, his last teaching, to basically help people to see the very first teaching. Because I imagine he probably knew his last words were going to be very important. And if there's somebody who tries to understand his very last words and they've never studied the Buddhist teachings ever before, well, understanding his last words is basically a way to start the beginning of the path to enlightenment. What questions do you guys have on this chapter? Let's go to Nick for Facebook questions. Yes, teacher. Question from Amina. She writes, is the meaning here motivate students to not become attached to their teachers 
and to let Buddhism teachings and inner disciple be the guide. If that is right, curious how to find balance as the mind often considers to seek out the teacher when clarity is needed. Right. So you can take away the lessons that you just described, which is, yes, you should not be attached to your teacher. You shouldn't be attached to anybody. But remember, attachment doesn't mean that you don't have a relationship or that you don't pursue to learn the teachings. Practicing non-attachment means that you don't allow the mind to have this longing, this yearning, this strong eagerness. So let's say like you're studying a book that I wrote and you're like, oh my goodness, I got to contact David right away. That's craving, desire, attachment. Where if you're like, hmm, okay, well, I need to contact David and get some clarity on this. I'll do that when the time's right. And maybe in a couple of hours or a couple of days or in the next class, you ask a question. There you can see that you don't have craving, desire, attachment. So just seeking clarity from your teacher doesn't mean that there's a craving, desire, attachment to the teacher. It just means that you're seeking guidance. But if you feel that longing, that yearning, that strong eagerness to go to the teacher all the time, every single time, and just push, 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 that's what the craving, desire, attachment is. So it's important to understand that. And it's the same thing with all craving, desire, attachment. You're going to feel the mind pulling in the objects of its affection. So even if you're outside and you like you get tired and you just have this eagerness to hurry up and get home and go to sleep, well, going to sleep isn't the problem. Everybody needs to sleep. It's the longing for it. So now for the next hour on your drive home, you're angry, you're disgruntled, you're frustrated, you're irritated because the mind is longing to be at home. The longing, the craving, desire, attachment, that's what's causing the discontentedness. Whereas if you just realize like, okay, well, I'm going to get home when I get home. And when I get home, I would like to sleep. So the object of sleeping isn't the attachment. It's how the mind relates to it. So the teacher isn't the attachment. It's how the mind relates to the teacher, that the mind can have an attachment to a teacher. But I don't think you're attached to me, Amina. <laughs> well, thanks, teacher. No question. All right. Chapter 98. Four places which should arouse confidence in the dedicated. Venerable sir, formerly monks who, who had spent the rains in various places, used to come to see the Tathagata, and we used to welcome them so that such well-trained monks might see you and pay their respects. But with the, the perfectly enlightened ones passing, we shall no longer have a chance to do this. Ananda, there are four places the sight of which should arouse confidence in the dedicated. Which are they? Here the Tathagata was born in the first, is the first. Here the Tathagata attained supreme enlightenment in the second. Here the Tathagata, the Tathagata set in motion the wheel of the teachings. The Dhamma wheel is the third. Here the Tathagata attained full final enlightenment, final nibbana, death of the physical body, without remainder is the fourth. And Ananda, the dedicated male and female ordained practitioners, male and female household practitioners will visit those places. 
and any who dies while making the pilgrimage to these shrines with a devote heart, will, and at the breakup of the body after death, be reborn in a heavenly world. Okay, so here, this is, I think it's Ananda. Yeah, Ananda once again, right? He's like, hey, you know, uh, this is prior to the Buddha's death, even though the last chapter was the Buddha's last words, but this is prior to the Buddha's death, where he's like, you know, what are we going to do? Like, people come here and they show respect to you for all your teaching. What are we going to do once you die? And the Buddha's like, okay, there's these four sites that you can visit in order to arouse this confidence and show your respect. And he says, you know, the first place you can visit is the place where I was born. The second one is the location that I attained enlightenment and kind of attributed to that location. The third place is the place where he set the Dhamma wheel in motion. This is the place where he gave his very first discourse. That's considered to be the place where he set this Dhamma wheel in motion. And then the fourth place is the place where he dies. And those places are distinguished places that you can actually go visit today and see. And people make pilgrimage to these locations even today. It's not required. It's not something that you have to do. But if you would like to go to these places, they're there. And the Buddha says, you know, during his lifetime, that if somebody should die on the way to these places, that they will be reborn into the heavenly world. Because traveling during his lifetime, I'm sure, was much harder than it is today. I don't think anybody would potentially die on their way to these places today. But during his lifetime, you know, traveling was a lot harder. So I guess he's saying, okay, if somebody died on the way, they would be reborn into the heavenly realm. And one thing to follow up with Amina's question and connected to this one too, if you're curious whether or not you're attached to a particular person, one question you can ask yourself is if this person dies, how would you feel? And if you know that you would feel sorryful and you would have grief if this person died, then you know that you're attached to that person. So related to your teacher, Amina, if, if you got news that I died, how would you feel? If you would feel sorryful and you would grieve that death, then you know you're attached to that person. Same thing like if your husband or your daughter or somebody else, your parents died, how would you feel about that? If you know, any practitioner knows, that they would grieve that death, then they know that the mind is attached because an enlightened being or someone that you're not attached to, you won't grieve their death. Even in the unenlightened state, if you're not attached to somebody, you won't grieve. So for example, when you hear a news article that two people died in their home of old age, you don't grieve because you're not attached to those people. It's just two people dying that you didn't know and they died of old age. So therefore there's no grief. But if it was your mom and dad who died and you got that news, then the mind's going to be shaken up and the person's going to grieve if there's attachment there. So if you're ever curious if you're attached to any particular person or not, just ask yourself the question, if they died right now and you got a phone call that they had died, how would you feel about that? And if you're observed that your mind would be sorrowful and grieve, then you know you're attached to that person. And this is Ananda. He grieved the Buddha's death. And you can see a lot of questions he's asking repeatedly the Buddha as he's getting ready to die. It's really cute, I think, that he's so attached. But of course, a teacher 
aspires for none of their students to be attached to them. But there is going to be a situation where a teacher does die and there are some students that are attached and there was lots of grieving when the Buddha died amongst the people who were unenlightened. But the people who were enlightened had deep respect and gratitude for the Buddha, but they weren't attached to him, so there was no grieving. Any questions on this chapter? Yes, Nick has some grit. Yes, sir. Um, based on what you just said, would, would you say that the best way to um, not be attached to anybody in the world, you know, like family member or teacher or, or anybody for that matter, would be just to understand the teachings and, and know the cycle of birth or new existences, you just know they go somewhere else and that's the way it is? Is that, is that a way for the mind to, to handle that? Because uh, I'm starting to look at things like that. That's part of it. That can help you. You know, there's attachment to people that are close to us is oftentimes multi-layered. You know, the mind can think that you're not attached to somebody, but there can be attachment there. Like, Nick, you just traveled to Thailand and you were gone from your family for six weeks. If you notice that the mind was missing or worried or had thoughts of missing people that you left behind in America when you traveled to Thailand, then you know, okay, there's some attachment there. But there's different degrees of attachment. There's over here where when someone dies, it feels like your legs are utterly knocked out from under you, grieving, sobbing, you know, completely torn apart. And then there's like, yeah, I'm kind of like grieving. I'm kind of sad. I'm kind of sorryful. And then there's, you know, lesser versions of that. And what you do is through your practice, it's not just a matter of sitting down and thinking like, okay, well, if they die, they're going to move on and so be it. There's actually aspects of your practice that you develop as a way to train the mind to let go of people. And one of the things that you can do is like what you did is go away and be away from your family for a while. And this can help you and it can help your family to understand impermanence in that while we're together and we can enjoy that time where that we're together, this is impermanent. And then when we go away on travel, okay, we're away from each other, but this is impermanent too, and we can come back together. So there's this way of being that you can kind of recognize that each other are impermanent and everything that you're experiencing in life is impermanent. But there's many facets to training the mind to let go of these people that are so close to us. And if you observe that you would grieve or you would be sorrowful or sad, if somebody close to you died, then you know there's attachment there and you need to work on that. Or if when you're away from somebody, you're constantly thinking about them or like you miss somebody, then you know like, okay, I'm missing them. That means the mind is discontent that when you're away from them. And we've kind of grow up thinking that that's normal that when you're away from somebody, you should miss them. And that's kind of like a sign of your love. But this is a misunderstanding of love. It's actually a craving desire attachment that the mind becomes discontent, that the mind is missing this person and feels somewhat miserable when you're not around them. And this is where you know that the mind is attached to this person. And by going away and coming back and going away and coming back and seeing that as just a normal part of life, can be really helpful to train the mind to let go. And there's other parts of that too that allows the mind to gradually be trained to let go of any attachment to an individual. Thank you, sir. You're welcome. Well, uh, sometimes it's not easy for the mind to see this craving. 
So in the usual conditions or circumstances, the mind is not able to see that there is craving until there is a change or some impermanence to observe that maybe there was a strong shock or the mind was strongly shaken. Uh, any advice on how to observe these cravings? Yes, if you're developing right mindfulness as part of the Eightfold Path, then you should be observant of the mind. And when you're away from people, then you can observe whether the mind is discontent. Or you can do like what I shared is like, imagine that your partner left today from the house and they're never coming back. You got a phone call that they've died in a tragic car accident, for example. How would you feel? And if you can reflect on that, and you can observe that, yeah, you'd be pretty torn up about that, then you know that the mind is attached to this person. And as I like to say is, you haven't done anything wrong. You're not a bad person because you have attachment to your partner. It just shows that the mind still has attachment. Sometimes with these traditions, we like to say, you know, is this good or is it bad? Well, it's not good and it's not necessarily bad. It's just the state of your mind. And when you observe that state of the mind, that you are attached to your partner or you are attached to your children or you are attached to your parents, then you need to talk with a teacher, talk with us, help us understand what you're experiencing. And then we give you specific guidance to help you learn how to eliminate attachment to loved ones. And this is why I'm going to be spending a lot of time in the retreat in America. There's going to be multiple classes about this, that the theme of the retreat is harmony and relationships. And there's one specific class that I'm going to teach about how to eliminate attachment to those that are close to us. And then there's some other classes around that same topic that we're going to be discussing and making sure that people understand this. And I would like to record those classes so that we can get them onto the podcast and onto YouTube and things like that. But I'm not sure how easily that we're going to be able to do that. But if we actually have the retreat, I will be teaching this content so that we can get it out into the open more. But the thing that you use to determine if there's craving, desire, attachment or not is if the mind is discontent. And the way that you do that is through mindfulness and having mindfulness. All right. So chapter 99. Yes. Three places that should be remembered. Months. There are these three places that a head anointed Kataya king should remember all his life. What three? One. The first, the place where he was born. Two. The second is a place where he was head anointed a Kataya king. Three. And the third is a place where having triumphed in battle, he emerged victorious and settled at the head of the battlefield. These are the three places that a head anointed Kataya king should remember all his life. Okay, thanks, Basum. So the Buddha during his lifetime, he taught people of all levels of society. So he taught royal families, he taught common people, and he taught people who were considered at that time to be of lower class. He opened the doors to everybody. So here he's sharing a teaching for a king of what they should remember as part of their life. And this Katya clan or these group of people, this ethnic group of Katyas 
are considered to be very successful and very prosperous during the lifetime of the Buddha. They were living very well according to the teachings of the Buddha. Even prior to the Buddha awakening, they had some awareness and some understanding of teachings because these are natural laws of existence. Your mom and dad and grandmother and grandpa and other people taught you you know, not to kill, not to steal, not to have sexual misconduct, not to lie, not to have substances that cause heedlessness. These five precepts that the Buddha taught, these are like universal teachings that a lot of different teachers tap into. Even mom and dad and grandma, grandpa, even Jesus Christ taught these same things. And I'm sure that Prophet Muhammad did as well, although I'm not 100% sure because I don't know his teachings very well. But I imagine they even show up in Hindu teachings and other places as well, because these are the natural laws of existence. But the Buddha penetrated these natural laws of existence in a way that no other teachers did because he was the fully, perfectly enlightened one. In this particular teaching to a king, I share in the explanation about how you can relate this to your life, because you are probably not a king, you're probably not a, a queen, although we do have some of those in the world. I talk down here about how you can relate these to things that are going on in your life. And I say that, you know, a practitioner can consider applying this teaching to your life as part of, you know, remembering where you were born. The location is significant and understanding that the place of your birth is significant. And any successes that you've had in your life, whether it's personal successes or business successes, remember those places and where you've accomplished those certain successes in your life. And then also remember the people who are involved, who contributed to those successes, because this is very important for you that as you go forward in life, oftentimes the ego or conceit makes you want to believe or makes you want to think that you're so wonderful and you're so great and you've created all this success for yourself. But in reality, for you to be successful as a human being, whether it's personal success or business success, there's multiple people that have contributed to that. It's never just you that has created that success. Even if you went away to college and you got a master's degree or a PhD, there were multiple people that were involved in you accomplishing that goal. It's not just your success. Even though you're the one who gets the degree, you're the one who walks across the stage and you might be proud that you've gotten that degree. There's multiple people that have contributed to that success. And by you remembering those people and thanking those people, showing your appreciation and showing your gratitude, this helps to improve your gamma and that the more appreciative, the more gratitude you show to the people around you who are helping you to become successful, then the more that this appreciation that you share with others is going to culminate into people being interested to help you more in life. So if you went through life and people were contributing to your life and helping you through life and you didn't show gratitude and appreciation to them, there's not gonna be very many people that are interested to continue to help you in your life because these people are helping you and you're not showing any kind of gratitude and appreciation. But if you understand the natural law of gamma, that you do need people in the world to be successful, whether it's your children, your life partner, your neighbors, your colleagues at work, your boss, anybody who's around you is supporting and helping you in your life. And as you meet with success in life, it's very wise for you to share that success with others. And whatever 
generous ways that you can share that success and show gratitude and appreciation. So that's how you can use this teaching of the Katia King that, you know, remembering the place where he was born, remembering when he became a king and remembering where he triumphed in battle, right? So triumphing in battle can be considered like you've met with success in your life and where you meet with success in your life, you should remember those successes and remember the people that contributed to those successes so you can share gratitude and appreciation with them. And this will encourage and incentivize people to continue to help you in life. Whereas if you didn't show that gratitude and appreciation, you wouldn't see that continuation of people being interested to continue to help you in life. What questions do you guys have on this chapter? All right. Now we've got chapter 100, which this is one that you've asked me to cover, right, Bassam? Okay, this one is titled, Birth is the Origin of Discontentedness, the Union of Three Things. Monks, the conception of an embryo in a womb takes place through the union of three things. Here, there is the union of the mother and father, but it is not the mother season, and the consciousness or mind to be reborn is not present. In this case, there is no conception of an embryo in a womb. Here, there is union of a mother and father, and it is mother's, and it is the mother's season, but the consciousness mind to be reborn is not present. In this case, too, there is no conception of an embryo in a womb. But when there is the union of the mother and father, and it is the mother's season, and the consciousness mind to be reborn is present, through the union of these three things, the conception of an embryo in a womb takes place. So I'm just going to pause here for a moment. This is the Buddha talking about three things coming together in order to create a living being. And at the time that these three things come together, that is the living being. So he's saying this mother and father need to come together, essentially have intercourse, right? It has to be the mother season, meaning she's got an egg that's going to be released from her ovaries. And there's this consciousness that comes into the mother's womb. And when there's these three things that come together, that's when a living being is going to be formed in the womb of a mother. And this is where you can see that the Buddha considered at the time of conception, that is now a living being. The mother then carries the embryo in her womb for nine or 10 months with much anxiety as a heavy burden. Then, at the end of nine or ten months, the mother gives birth with much anxiety as a heavy burden. Then, when the child is born, she nourishes it with her own blood, for the mother's breast milk is called blood in the noble one's discipline. When he grows up and his sense bases mature, the child plays at such games as toy plows, tip cat, somersaults, toy windmills, toy measures, toy carts, and a toy bow and arrow. When he grows up and his sense bases mature still further, the youth enjoys himself provided and endowed with the five chords of central pleasure, with forms recognizable by the eye, sounds recognizable by the ear, odors recognizable by the nose, flavors recognizable by the tongue, physical objects recognizable by the body that are wished for, desired, agreeable, and likable, 
connected with central desire and provocative of craving. I'm going to pause here for a second. This is the Buddha talking about how craving, desire, attachment, and all of this discontentedness gets started. He's talking about a being comes to be in the mother's womb. And when the being's in the mother's womb, this is when the six sense bases start to form. And then when the being comes out of the mother's womb, those six sense bases continue to grow and continue to mature. And then as a being grows up, we start becoming enamored with this central pleasures, with these forms coming through the eye, the sounds, the odors, the flavors of the tongue, the physical objects that are wished for, desired, agreeable, and likable, connected with central desire and provocative of craving. This is how the mind starts to get obsessed with craving, desire, attachment, and having this central desire. We start having discontentedness come about because of our sense bases maturing. Then he goes through and he talks about the individual sense bases. He says, on seeing a form with the eye, and he repeats this for all the others as well, on seeing a form with the eye, he craves after it if it is pleasing. He dislikes it if it is unpleasing. He resides with mindfulness of the body, unestablished, with a limited mind, and he does not understand as it actually is the liberation of mind and the liberation by wisdom, wherein those evil unwholesome states cease without remainder. So here he's talking about a being who starts to experience all these pleasurable things and wants to crave them and hold them close and then starts experiencing this displeasing things and wants to kind of push them away. And he says, you know, he doesn't reside with this mindfulness of the body. He doesn't understand these four foundations of mindfulness that the bodily sensations are going to be an indication of discontentedness. And because the person doesn't understand this, their mindfulness is unestablished. They have this limited mind that they don't understand as it actually really is that you need to liberate the mind. Allowing the mind to have this craving, desire, attachment is going to lead to discontentedness. The mind, this being, doesn't understand liberation by wisdom, wherein those evil, unwholesome states cease without remainder. So since this being doesn't understand this path to enlightenment, engaged as he is in favoring and opposing, whatever feeling he feels, whether pleasant or painful, or neither painful nor pleasant, he delights in that feeling, welcomes it, and remains holding to it. As he does, so excitement arises in him. So this is talking about the arising of pleasant feelings. And now excitement and feelings is clinging. So once this pleasant feelings arise, now the mind clings and wants to hold on to them. He's describing the whole problem and how it gets underway as we mature. With his clinging as condition, existence comes to be. With existence as condition, birth. With birth as condition, aging and death, sorrow, grief, pain, displeasure, and despair come to be. Such is the origin of this whole mass of discontentedness. He's explaining how this whole massive amount of discontentedness gets underway. And then he goes through and he talks about all the other individual sense bases, the ear, the nose, the tongue, the body, and the mind. And he just repeats what he just said is like, okay, we experience all this stimulation basically through these sense bases as we're growing up. 
we learn and we get accustomed to these pleasant feelings and we start clinging to these pleasant feelings because we don't know this path. We don't have this wisdom. We don't understand this path to enlightenment. And that's where this discontentedness really gets underway. And then we continue to have this excitement and these feelings of clinging. And with clinging as condition, existence comes to be. With existence as condition, birth. With birth as condition, aging and death. Sorrow, grief, pain, displeasure and despair come to be. Such is the origin of this whole mass of discontentedness. So he's explaining the origins, you know, deeper than just the Four Noble Truths. The Four Noble Truths is like a snapshot, a real kind of shorthand way of explaining discontentedness. But here he's going on to explain it in much more elaborate detail, how it comes to be. What questions do you guys have here? All right. Well, it looks like we're all done for today's class. I will thank all of you for joining us for today's class and just remind you that next class we're going to be in chapters 101 to 110. Those are the chapters that we're going to cover next week and you can be reading those this week little by little you know maybe like 15-20 minutes a day and just read those chapters and the explanations. If you have questions as you're reading you're welcome to reach out for help by putting a post into Facebook or sending a private message or scheduling a personal guidance session, but we'll also discuss them in class as well. So you can ask your questions in class and slowly but surely as we go through all these volumes, you're going to be building up your practice because you're going to be building up your wisdom about this path to enlightenment. The next class is going to be next Saturday covering those chapters 101 through 110. Tomorrow in Sunday's class on the group learning program, we're going to be studying chapter seven, which is the five precepts. So we're going to be diving into those and exploring those in detail and making sure that people understand how to apply them to their daily life. And then on Wednesday, we're going to be in our third class of our four part series of learning Buddhist chanting. So thank you all for joining for today's class. We'll see you either next Saturday or perhaps Sunday or Wednesday in our group learning program. Have a very lovely rest of your day. Sawadee Thank you for listening to this podcast. To provide support for this podcast, visit patreon.com forward slash support Buddha. To access more teachings, visit buddhadailywisdom.com. There, you will discover a full range of courses, retreats, and online resources to assist you on the path to enlightenment. Remember to establish a daily, consistent meditation practice, along with learning and practicing these teachings. A well-developed meditation practice is the foundation in which to train the mind to attain enlightenment.